Mark My Words shares Mark Homer's contrarian views on investing, business, finance, economics, and all things money. Mark interviews the world's most successful business, finance, and money experts, as well as imparting his knowledge in a factual, direct, and no-nonsense manner. Welcome to Mark My Words, and here is your host, Mark Homer. Welcome to Mark My Words. This is Mark Homer. We've got Alfie Best here, who is the biggest mobile park operator in the United Kingdom, and I think soon to be in the world. Um, and uh, he's the owner of Wild Crest, uh, uh, sorry, Wild Crest Parks. Um, Alfie, just just tell us a little bit about why you got into this sort of whole park home industry. I know you're in the car. Um, you, you know, you were trading cars previously and you've been in property all the way through. Can, can you tell us why, why, why this? It was really uh, a natural progression from um, commercial property, which was what we were doing. And I'm obviously uh, a Roman gypsy. I was born and bred in a caravan. Um, and when we first started looking at mobile home parks and they're really no longer mobile home parks they're park home bungalow estates for the retired and um uh who better to buy uh you know a caravan a mobile home or a park home from from somebody that has lived breathed and ate it all of their life you know i'm passionate about what i do i love what i do and you have to love what you do to be successful out of it. Otherwise, it then becomes work. What I do isn't work to me. So, I mean, I've stayed on a, on a few sort of park homes and I, you know, your initial vision of them in terms of the, the quality and, you know, you just don't understand the, the sort of sense of community and, and all the facilities on site. And I've stayed in some, some pretty impressive, I mean, they're buildings really, um, so I was quite surprised and I understand the, the sort of the attraction from the consumer's point of view. Um, as an operator, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in property. I'm, I'm constantly buying buildings. I'm, I'm trying to increase the density. I'm trying to, to sort of sweat the asset a little bit. Um, what, what is the big, you know, are, they, are, are these guys going in and uh, are they on leases or are they on license or how, how, do, how do the mechanics work? Sorry just to get right into the meat and bones, but this, this has been going through my mind for years, actually. And I find this bit really the, the interest bit, interesting bit. It's a fantastic question. And there's even better answer. And it's basically they purchase the home. So they're the, they're the owner of their home. Yeah. They're still a home owner. But they also then get a 1983 mobile home act to station their home on the plot of the park, which is within their ownership. And it's in layman's terms, when somebody says to me, explain what a 1983 act is, it's a very powerful document that's drafted by the government and it's actually an indeterminable lease. Oh, okay, right. So it just continues no indefinitely. Exactly. Yeah. There's no time frame. You know, whereas if you buy a flat, it'll be 99 years, 125 yeah. years, 150 years, or whatever that may be. Um, with the 1983 Mobile Home Act, there's no end date. It's uh, an indefinite agreement. 
obviously there are terms and conditions that you have to abide by. Um, and there are also terms and conditions that we have to abide by. But it's a simple document. It's not difficult. But it's a very powerful document. So, so effectively, they, 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 buy the, they buy the building. Uh, and I know sort of in years gone by, and maybe some of them, they're, they're, they're sort of movable. I suppose they are semi-movable, these, these buildings. But they're more of static in nature these days. That's Absolutely. My, yeah. And, and then it goes on this base and there's effectively a, an indefinite lease with no end date on it. Um, and it is the ground rent, you know, which is what I understand because I, I take buildings, I take offices or retail and convert them into apartment buildings. Um, okay. Let, let me tell you how yeah. the model works. Yeah. Is you're purchasing a hub, yeah. which is in effect a bungalow. It's a built to residential standard, but it's a prefabricated building built in a factory. Yeah. And if somebody said to me, how would, you how would you decide what the specification is to describe to a layman what the um, building is made of? Think exactly how the Americans make timber homes. And these are manufactured virtually to the same specification. And like we're making modular homes in this country now. I mean, a site that I'm looking at or, or a site I'm developing at the moment, we have been considering craning modular units onto the roof. Well, these these are actually modular buildings built in factories. Which is but the, yeah, the same thing. Mobile home. The reason that that is, it's a planning quirk in the law, which... They have to be built on a chassis. I see. They have to be built on wheels. Now, the problem with there is they don't need the wheels yeah. because they never uh, actually ever really ever get moved. I, the only time they ever get moved are ones that are like 50, 60 years old, and they're built that were originally caravans. The ones today are actually referred to as park home bungalows. Yeah. And I'm very, very honest with you. This is the real solution to the affordable housing crisis that we have. And because you are buying a park-home bungalow, which you're the owner of, which is half price to what you're going to pay for a likewise bungalow within the same area. Because you haven't got to buy the freehold. I'm presuming, Absolutely. and you haven't got to you haven't got to fit within all these sort of planning guide. I I I don't understand the planning system with with, with regards to mobile homes, um, but I'm presuming the that the whole regime is different, and a lot it of you is, guys operate in the green belt and on greenfield sites. It, it, trust me, it is harder to get planning for retirement mobile home parks than what it is to build a housing estate. Much harder. And the reason that that is, is because it's financially the best way forward for a resident. They sell their home. They put money in their pocket. They move into a better home than where they were before. They're now paying council ban tax A. They're paying no stamp duty to move into the home. That's great. And that's, and that's what the government doesn't like. 
That's what the local council doesn't like. They're not getting their pound of meat and flesh. So they would much prefer to give planning permission for a housing estate than what they would a retirement mobile home park. When it is the real solution, a real solution to actually affordable housing. Why is it the real solution? Because it's always affordable. It follows the chain of events of housing. You know, we're linked to housing because it is housing. The government aren't getting their pound of meat and flesh, so that it's very difficult to get planning for park home estates. That's, that's really interesting, Alfie. So effectively, the chassis and the wheel part of this, the fact it's got to be built on a chassis and, and wheels, doesn't benefit you from a, a planning perspective. So how does it benefit you? Why wouldn't you just sort of put foundations in and, and, and build it into the ground? Because then it becomes a house. And what? And it actually becomes a fixed, whereas the, it's, it's purely a planning quirk in the law. Okay, so there is there's some other sort of planning route you can go down it, or, or well, some no, form of other application if, if it's built on a chassis. If we have a mobile home park that uh, has planning permission as a mobile home park, we can't build housing there. Okay. So they have to be within the guise of a caravan. Interesting. And that's all it is. It is a guise because it's classified as a caravan. It's actually classified as a caravan. But yet it never tows anywhere and never goes anywhere. Mm. It's a static home. All these little quirks, all these little sort of permitted development rights or, you know, th those little wormholes are, I find, you know, when I'm, because I'm taking sort of office buildings or retail buildings or whatever, and I'm converting them. And I usually find that I make the most money out of those little quirks, um, i.e. You, you're putting it on a chassis, you're putting it on wheels. Um, okay, lots of people are doing it, but, you know, to sort of take, take the path that's most beaten and to do what everybody else does uh, and to, to do the most obvious thing often doesn't make you the most successful. Do you think, do you think there's some truth in that? Well, of course. I think we all need to find our uh, niches, our little niches. I don't regard as what we do as being a niche. It's how the mobile home park industry works. Um, why do I – now, we have 13,000 residents across the country. We have 75 residential parks across the country, and we have five um, parks in North Carolina and America, and we're looking to expand that. What I tend to find in this country, government legislation is passed down, but councils are still of the opinion to say no. Mm, I get that so a lot. They're not, it's not a positive. It's as <laughs> trying to put up um, a rebuttal before you've even gone down that route. That's not um, based on the legislation. Absolutely. Yeah. Central absolute. government is your friend and local councillors are often against you just because of their local whims and not, not based on planning policy or, or the national, policy, uh, national planning policy framework. Let, let me say this. We live in a great country. And it is a fabulous country that we live in that has a lot of opportunities if you go out and take them. But do you know something? 
where actually the country is selling itself short. Because we, we do business in three different countries, one being Barbados and the other uh, being the USA. And they reward businessmen and entrepreneurship and they push you forward. In the UK, we don't seem to recognise that. It's only over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years that we've started to see a peak, such as like Dragon's Den and some of the things that Alan Sugar and Richard Branson have done that we've celebrated. Everybody else seems to get put down. <laughs> I love to see people trying because the hardest thing in the world is to actually make a success. Because when you manage to get over that hill of making a business into a success, that's when it becomes a bit easier by getting momentum going. And there's such a difference. But getting up that hill can be soul-destroying sometimes. And it takes, I believe, a special person to be able to start a business, make a business successful, and then drive it forward. And then there are other challenges. How do you duplicate it? How do you feed off of that business? So it's really interesting, Alfie, how you've gone into these other markets. Um, I know with our business, I, I, I did initially go abroad on a much, much smaller scale. Um, and I just found it was so much easier to keep sort of um, getting economies of scale and following the same legal process following the same, you know, de dealing with the same sort of financial backdrop, uh, you know, all the rules, the regulations, the customers, everything like that within the United Kingdom, they're about the same. Yeah, the north of England, they're a bit different, you know, in Wales or Scotland. Okay, some of the laws are different, but generally it's similar. You go to America, there's a whole new set of laws, whole new set of banks. Barbados, you know, I, you know, I go there sometimes, I know what it's like, is the finance, I don't even know. Do you sort of what 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 made you go to these places? Firstly, and and secondly, have you found that challenging to to to, to sort of reinvent your business so that it operates effectively in those markets? Or I don't know, maybe you bought businesses there. Okay, let, let let me say this to you: when you start a new business anywhere, whether it's America, whether it's um, Barbados, or even if you start a new business which you're not involved in here in the UK, you have to pay a tax. And that tax is called the idiot tax. Your entrance fee. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I paid that. Yeah, yeah. And, it's called, and it's called learning. Yeah. They can see you coming, mm. and there are people that want to take advantage of you. What I say is always start small. That way... Mm. Your, your learning fee is going to be much cheaper mm. because you're going to learn by the small mistakes you then duplicate. You won't make those into big mistakes. So for us, when we first went to America, we bought one park. Indeed. Made loads of mistakes. <laughs> made loads. Do you know something? We're not making them now. So it's all about growing, learning, and making sure that the model that you have can, how do I put this? A business has to be like water. It has to flow. 
It has to manoeuvre itself, but be powerful enough to push forward. You water your crops along the way and you make your gardens and your crops flourish. You can only do in that by keeping a constant flow and you have to be prepared to follow it through. So with your investments in, say, Barbados, what, what have you got? You've got um, park, park homes there or what you, no? What sort of stuff is it? In Barbados, we went out there and the country was in a terrible recession. And I have a policy that I believe works. Be brave when everybody else is running away. Yeah. Run away when everybody else is mm. being brave. Because mm. markets that are going up can only go one way, and that's down. Markets that are going down can only go one way, and that's up. It's about finding the level that you're comfortable at. And there is – so what we do out there is we bought a lot of very, very exclusive villas. Did we you? are not seeing villas out there. Where, where, West Coast or whereabouts? Uh, Mainly in St. James's. Yeah. That's the model that we went for. Yeah. And uh, we then refurbished those villas, and that's now a business that's very successful. We're growing it, and we are still looking to purchase more assets, more property, and grow our business there. So, sorry, Alfie. So, is this within a, a sort of community, or are they individual villas along the, the seafront, or what, what sort of stuff? Both. Yeah, okay. We weren't sure, but one of the villas that we have there is a, a, a villa called Ocean Heights, okay. which is a five-star villa, which is on the beach. Uh, it's a seven-bedroom villa. It's, it, it, it's, it's out of this world. We have an, another one called Sugar Hill, which is on the Sugar Hill estate, and they're two different types of clients. But if you look also at the model of the business that we're going for, it's not that far different to what we do now. You know, we're providing uh, accommodation for people that want to go on holiday. We bought another uh, uh, complex of villas, which was uh, 11 villas in a place called King's Court. Um, that's just off the beach, and that has a communal pool. And, again, we're now in the process of refurbishing that and we're building that business. We're now in the process of looking to purchase a very, very large complex of 850 acres. Um, but I can't say too much more about it because we're halfway through the stage of seeing where we're going. If we're successful, um, that will be a, 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 a big task to turning it around because it is struggling. But I think we're the right people to do it. That's really interesting. So effectively, you've moved your model um, into sort of higher end villas on a nightly rental basis. So yeah. you, you, you rent, I'm going towards the end of the year. I'm going in November and I'll rent an apartment in Payne's Bay like I, I normally do. You know, and I, I, I love going there. Um, but, you, you know, your, your sort of home operation, they're... they're, they're you know, they're, they're effectively, they're, they're, they're long-term, if not sort of lifetime tenants, aren't they? And you're, you're moving into the holiday market, which is a, a completely different thing, really. Um, would I say that what we we also have holiday parks here in the UK. Yeah, okay, yeah. 
So that's a part of our business. We have seven holiday parks here in the UK. So we're not adverse. We also um, have golf courses here in the UK where we've started to implement lodges. Now, golf courses are one of the hardest businesses that you'll, you'll ever be involved in because there's a lot of grass to cut. <laughs> they often don't make money, do they? They you see all the they never seem to make money yeah ours do yeah okay. the, reason, the reason that ours do is we've we've created a chameleon model whereas what we're doing is now you have to support the golf course and the golf course has to support the other business so we've started putting lodges around the courses mm. in strategic positions so they're not dangerous for the golf balls and now we have an income stream where golfers stay overnight. Families come and stay there where the husband can go and play golf. We've put in gyms, we've put in swimming pools, and we've turned them into more than a golf course. We've turned them into country clubs. So Royal Westmoreland or, or something like that. That type of product, yeah. which is actually working here in the UK. Yeah, really interesting. I've seen that a lot abroad. There's a lot of it in Spain, isn't there, and Portugal. Um, but, uh, yeah, not. Not in, I don't know, in this country, we just, I suppose it's not a, it's not the same sort of holiday market. We don't get the same sun, do we? But it's, uh, it's, it's just not something that we seem to do. Okay, so you, you've, we were just talking before we started, you bought a new helicopter. Um, I thought you still had your Eurocopter EC120. Um, you've, you've upgraded. Tell us about what, what, what you're on now. I bought uh, a new EC-130, which is a seven-seater, um, single-engine turbine helicopter. Um, and the people that uh, – I had Celia Sawyer, um, who's a designer, come in and design the hole inside for me and design the paintwork. And I was told by the um, Airbus that they believe that this will be – and their statement of mine, this will be the – uh, best EC-130 in the world because it is fitted with virtually every piece of equipment from autopilot, which is very, very unusual in a single-engine helicopter, yeah. to not vision, to a complete glass screen cockpit, and uh, the paintwork and the interior is very, very elaborate. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Well, uh, some, sometimes um, uh, it doesn't hurt to uh, uh, to splash a little bit yeah. of colour, should I say. <laughs> so you got it from Oxford, from Kidlington, I guess, yeah? Yep. Yeah, correct, yeah. I've been around that facility. It's very impressive, isn't it? And, um, yes. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess you tested a few. Did you try the twin as well? Yeah, I did. I tried. I, I flew the, um, uh, new, the, the new Airbus. 125, yeah. which is the new model of the old Squirrel. The H125, I remember. I, I went up in that, yeah. And lovely machine. Yeah. It's a very old, dated-looking yeah. machine, yeah. and it's been around forever. Yeah. Whereas, I've got to be honest with you, I think the EC120, which is the previous machine, yeah. is one of the best-looking helicopters on the market. It looks better than all of them. But it's modern, sleek. But it's not powered. No, it's underpowered, and you can't fill it up. You can't put it full of people. We we had a, a trip to Bournemouth not that long ago, and you sort of go half full, and you're like, "What? What's the point?" Yeah. Whereas, how much power have you got now with your your one thirty, and more than if you'd got the twin? 
Because the twin Ooh. is really, in reality, it's it's less powerful. So maybe I, I look, I'm not an expert on helicopters, far from it. What I would say is that I love the look of the machine because I genuinely believe the EC-130 is best turbine single engine helicopter out there mm. you put seven people in there fill it with luggage yeah. and still lift off vertically yeah you know it, it, and fill it with a tank of fuel and you can do 380 nautical kilometers on it or nautical miles should i yeah. say sorry um and uh you know yeah i i, I for that i love it yeah. i'm actually taking my ppl at this oh yeah i was going to ask you yeah and uh, I had a funny enough, I had a helicopter crash um, in November um, in a Robinson 44. Um, and I lifted off from a piece of concrete and grass. And the skid was stuck in the, uh, the grass. Yeah. So when it took off, yeah. I got in a, a towel spin. It ended up coming down sort of 70 foot off the ground. So I was lucky to get away. The pilot was in intensive care. Um, luckily, I got out with a scrape underneath my eye. Wait, you la- it went down on its side, did it? Yes. Yeah. 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 So it helped because it crushed the machine. Yeah. And obviously it took some of the impact out. Yeah. Well, lucky you're here today. And uh, this, this is the thing with them. They can be uh, a little bit squirrely. And, um, yeah, I fly 44 and um, I touch, touch wood, I, I haven't had any major issues but um yeah you have to be very careful especially with the well, weather as well that's the big thing well i started to fly i started with a, a, a twinto and oh, i did that's, <laughs> you can fly with them you can fly <laughs> around up there yeah a little little bit of wind and you're on your side aren't you yeah 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 okay so um sort of back back to business um you know, you, you put it in another way, um, you know, be, be greedy when others are fearful um, and fearful when others are greedy. I, you know, I can't, it, that, that goes through my head all the time trying to, I, I, I don't ever feel like I can time the stock market. But when you look at the economic cycle and you, you think of recessions, you know, I don't know, we had one in 1990 and then we had another one in 2008. You can see there's a pattern there and you can probably say that in this cycle now, we've got to be in the second half. We don't know when the next recession is, but it's coming, you know, it's coming at, at, at some point, I would have thought in the next, I don't know, somewhere between sort of now and I don't know, eight years time, something like that. It's not 20 years away. Do you, sorry, go on. So I completely agree. I, I, I actually believe that we're in a flat line recession now. And I think Brexit is doing an awful lot to stop the recession because our mindset yeah. is not on the economy, on Brexit. Mm. And what I would say to you is, and I ask this to a lot of people, what has changed? What has changed? Nothing changed. But I'll tell you what has Still changed. Just a load of that. Well, but I'll tell you what that it has it has our pound you know like now if you're uh, which is good for us when we're bringing money back um, when we're sending money to terrible the dollar is at one 
to the pound, and the euro has been as low as 1.1 euros to the pound. Crazy. If we had the funds available that we weren't using, but we make our money sweat blood, you know, every penny has to be out there working. You know, I treat them like soldiers. You know, their, their job is to go out, conquer, bring a few more soldiers back, go out, conquer again, bring a few more soldiers back. I keep it simple. What I believe is you could sell euros now, sell the dollar now, and I believe that that will then transpire, that you'll be able to absolutely double, not double your money, but you'll definitely get a third more. The dollar is at 130. Yeah. It was at 125. That normally trades at 150 to 155. Or even I'm not, two. An expert. I'm not an expert. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's where it was. You know, one and a half to two, that's where we've had it. I'm not an expert on um, uh, currencies, but I also can count. And two to one sounds good to me. Yeah. I've got a short That's position on the dollar. I have for a while, uh, for a couple of years. And, of course, it's lost me money for a couple of years. But I suspect it'll come good. Yeah. It will. Uh, it, uh, listen, it's got to come good. It cannot not. Mm. The pound is the most undervalued valued currency at this moment in time, bar none. Along with our great companies. If you think of, I don't know, Lloyd's or, you know, maybe the house builders have gone a bit far. But you, you think of the... The sort of staple uh, British businesses, you know, maybe oil, maybe Unilever, those kind of, they are depressed like hell because of the negativity around Brexit. But they're still churning out the profits. A lot of them get their revenues from overseas anyway. Um, and, you know, nothing's fundamentally changed in those businesses. And I think when you get that sort of Brexit uncertainty or the, you know, the, the, the clarity on where this is all going, I suspect the value of those businesses will increase on the stock market quite quickly because they're good businesses. Somebody said to me the other day, uh, and, and, and this is slightly going off of a slant of what you just said, why is it that I believe that mobile home parks are the true affordable housing? And for me, it's very simple. The government are trying to build us out of social housing. They're that's how they're trying to solve the problem. But yet five years down the line, the housing that they built that was social housing is no longer social housing because there's no cap to it. They're brought into the market and they then have to compete with the other property that wasn't built as social housing and, it, and that then has a value which goes straight up automatically. So whereas if you look at a farm uh, house, which would have planning permission, which regulates it to only farm workers, that stays within that envelope. We don't do that for the police. We don't do that for the civil servants, ambulances, key workers, because what should happen is the planning that's granted for those, those properties should not be able to be sold to anybody else except within that level. And that would keep that affordable housing within that chain. We're doing that with park homes because it always stays as affordable housing. Why does it always stay as affordable housing? Because it's a park home. We're trading level with housing 
a park home trades 50% lower than yeah. a house. So as a house goes up, a park home goes up, but it never goes up to the level of a house. Because it's not freehold. Well, because there is a stigma attached to it. Yeah. And that stigma is that it's a mobile home. But the moment you can get over that stigma, for the customer, the resident, they've won the lottery. <laughs> because people now yeah. are younger, older. But let me say this to you. An Englishman's house is his castle, correct? Does it need to be a ball and chain around his neck? Or should he be able to free up his equity, move into yeah. a home that's just as good, if not better, yeah. and put that money in his in his pocket? Where, as, a, as a society, we are now younger, older. You're seeing older people doing more things, going more places, living their life. At 70 years old, they're off skiing in the Alps. Most of our customers now that downsize, and they're not downsizing as in size, they're just buying a home that's the same, happens to be a park home, and they're then buying a second home in Spain or France or America. Yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. And I wonder, you know, I know you've mentioned before you're sort of working to lobby the government. Have you, have you had any sort of responses or sort of positive noises that th th this is a way, because they've got massive lists, you know, our council's got huge lists and, you know, they've got massive targets for building all these traditional houses. Do, do, do you ever get any sort of incoming from them saying, well, actually, we could take those families and we could put them in a park home area or, you know, instead of having this many of our, you know, in, in our area, they have to provide a certain amount of housing units over a certain period of time. Could some of that not be translated into sort of park home units? Do you ever get Absolute, any of this? Absolutely. We're, we're, we're now trying to lobby the government to make them see this. Let me explain something to you, and this is absolutely the God's honest truth. We deal with 36 different councils around the country. There are some exceptional councils, forward thinking, that I can only say to you are a credit to this country. And then there are some mediocre ones, and then you've got some others that are just downright terrible. Shockers. I've dealt with a few of those. I, I'm going to give you a few. Let's take Thurrock Council, for instance. Lynn Carpenter is the chief executive of that council. Oh, my God, brilliant. Brilliant beyond belief. Now, I don't know if you know much about Essex, but Grays, Thurrock and Purfley were at the bottom end of the scale of Thurrock, uh, the bottom end of Essex. You wouldn't want to live there. It's now the third fastest growing borough in the UK. And that is only through, I can honestly say, somebody like Lynn Carpenter and Thurrock Council really driving the council forward, driving the borough forward. On the opposite end of the scale, you've got councils like Havering. Oh my God. Well, I've never seen a worse council. And, and, and why do I say that? 
We have a park at Romford called Lakeview Park. The council said that we breached the planning. It's absolutely true. Documentation to, pr to prove it. And, and said that we as a company had breached planning. But yet before we did the development, they wrote us emails on three occasions telling us what we were doing was permitted development rights. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> they didn't serve eviction notice on the residents that moved in those homes. Unbelievable. So, oh, well, listen, we're not going to let our residents down. We make sure that our residents are rehoused, their park home is put on an equivalent plot somewhere else so they don't lose out. Because I've got to be honest with you, what a disgraceful attribute for a council that can't meet their housing supply and are actually kicking people out of their homes. Shocking. Mm. You know, you, I, I, we see it all. And I'm one of the people that doesn't back down on what I've got to say. If you're good, you're good. If you're bad, you're bad. It's not meant as a criticism. It's meant as constructive criticism. And hopefully people like us can show that, you know, all councils aren't the same, just like all developers aren't the same. Yeah. So, so you're getting sort of positive feedback um, or... Yeah. yeah, from some count. So, are they are they looking at sort of including park homes in 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 some of the housing targets? Have they talked what about we, it? What we found is some councils are including them. Are they? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah, they are. And some councils are just completely against all home development. You know, like uh, I can honestly say to you, we're dealing on a wide spectrum. Thirty six councils across. And the the difference between one council and another is, and, and and you said it earlier on, government is passing the legislation down that we believe that the council should follow through, but they read it or see it how they do. <laughs> so we we've got uh, our director of planning here a guy that used to be the head of planning for uh, Epping, uh, Epping Council and for um, uh, Cardiff Council, for the head of their planning. And when he first came, I said, John, I said, please be prepared. I said, for, I said, I, 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 said, a, I said, a stigma that's attached, I said, to the industry that we're in. And he pretty well smirked at me with a wry smirk because he's now become game people. Yeah. He's poked. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he came back into my office and he was appalled at actually the negativity from some councils and he from other councils where there was great positivity. Um, to me, let's, let's just break this down a little. We've got councils, some councils, not all, think that it's correct and proper to convert shipping containers for people to live in. <laughs> and think it's a great idea. <laughs> Hold on, for God's sake, man, we've got a tried and tested model that's been going on in the UK for a hundred years and it's not recognised. Mm. 
sorry, I just I'm lost sometimes. Sometimes you just got to sort of, you know, plow on. Look at what the rules are. Look at what you know they accept, and but just find your own way through it. And just because there a lot of time, there is no bloody logic. So, well, the way that we look at it now is we before we invest in a borough we look to see if the council is a forward-thinking council. If they're not, take our money and our investment and take it to a council that's more welcoming. How do you work that out? Sorry? How do you work that out? We go and and pay a visit and speak to the chief exec, and if they haven't got time to see us when we're investing millions of pounds in their borough, we really don't need to be there. We want to be investing where we're welcomed. Not only do we where we're welcomed, where we are actually making a real difference and bringing money to their borough. And we don't want to be criticised for it. We want to be helped with it. And if they're not forward enough thinking to be able to see it, invest somewhere else. Well, they're getting Band-Aid council tax. Um, You know, surely this is as much benefit as it would... All right, maybe they don't get the 106 when the house is built or maybe some affordable housing, but they're still they're getting the ongoing sort of council tax and all the, the other sort of local, um, you know, local taxes, which those residents will generate. And it helps yeah. with their local housing issue. If you look at the wider picture, it's better than because what we're doing is we're bringing semi-retired and retired people and not from that borough that want to move there because their families are there that can't afford. Uh, a conventional house within that area to do what they want um, because they want to help their children get on the property ladder. So we're not bringing one family, we're bringing two. You know, there, there's, a, there's a bit more to it. than and, and we're also helping plug the gap with the social housing problem. Now, I hate the word social housing because it's not. It's affordable housing. And it is real affordable housing. So you're, you've had some sort of pretty serious setbacks over the years. I know, um, you know, you, you were involved in trading cars. Uh, you've had a few businesses previously. What have you been your biggest setbacks and what have you sort of learned from them and how, how has it put, pushed you into this business? Um, I'm not sure if I understand the question exactly, but I'll just take it the way, the way I, I think that you're asking me. If you mean biggest setbacks in business, um, what have caused me issues. The biggest setbacks that I have was believing in myself too much and not questioning myself on, and not having enough experience with what I was doing. I nearly went bust. Um, and I had somebody on Twitter, funny enough, say to me, what is the constitution of going broke? I was you know, shocked at that because he said somebody that could have lost all their money but still had £100,000 left, would that be constituted as going broke? Well, to me, no. You know, broke means you're in negative equity and you haven't got the money to pay the bills and you're going and you're verging on either going bankrupt or are bankrupt. You know, that's broke. And was I in that position? Absolutely. I was in negative equity where I had a house that I paid uh, half a million pound for. It was worth 300,000 and I had a 350,000 pound mortgage. I had a commercial site that I paid 150,000 pounds for and I had uh, a a, a 100,000 pounds mortgage and the site was worth 75. 
So I think that's worse than being broke. But it's about trading out of it. And what my biggest mistake was, I was absolutely flying, working away, doing great things. I didn't see the recession coming because I wasn't experienced enough. It wasn't the fault of the recession that I was in that position. It was mine. And it was mine because I thought I was better than I was. I believe now, you know, I'm not stopping people from believing in themselves, but we can all chant our hands and raise our fist in the air and say how great we are and what a great morning it is. But the difference is you still have to open your eyes to see the traffic coming down the road because if you cross it, more than likely you're going to get hit with a bus. So you, you know, the recession came along, you weren't prepared, you, you thought you were, in your words, you thought you were better than you were. How have you changed things now, ready for the next recession? How, what have you done to sort of protect yourself? We have, made, we have stopped looking at profit within our business and concentrated always on cash flow. You know, I sit sometimes with my board of directors and they love talking about profit. They love talking about EBITDA and, uh, you know, patting each other on the back and how well are we doing. Now, my question lies is, right, okay, how much cash is coming in the business? Okay, how much cash is going out? Because you can have a piece of property. Let's just take this for instance. And you can have a repayment mortgage. And the cash level can be in the red, but the profit can be in the black. Yeah. You know, and people forget this. So you, it's a balancing act. With, with, an, so, with a fully amortizing mortgage, you mean? Yeah. 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 You know, so for those, for those reasons, it's about constantly looking um, and balancing and making sure that your business is sweating blood and that your wastage is at a minimum. Constantly check your wastage. That could be down to the water bottles in the corner of your building. Could be down to, you know, what is it that that business needs to thrive or what is that business doing just to survive? Every pound's a prisoner. <laughs> well, to me, to me, they're more than a, they're, they're not a prisoner because a prisoner you've got to feed. <laughs> I, can't afford, I can't afford to fight to pay. I can't afford to pay to feed the prisoners. Mm. They've got to work. <laughs> Brilliant. <clears throat> so uh, clearly, you know, after all these years of experience, you must have iterated and developed and, you know, sort of changed your model, A, to Im improve, you know, reduce the, the amount of wasted water bottles, improve the cash flow and, and to increase profit. What process do you follow? How do you innovate? Do you, do, you, do you have a load of systems? Do you have a load of feedback channels? What is it that you do to get better and better incrementally at running these parks? Okay, well, I buy a lot of businesses that have gone either into receivership. It's one of the things that we do on a fairly regular basis. We buy three or four businesses a year that have gone into administration or in, even into receivership. And the first thing that we do is we put a very, very rudimentary cash flow in place. And every payment that goes out is on an Excel sheet spread and every payment that comes in. So we can clearly see at the bottom 
what the minus is. And then it's about what do you need in that business to make it function? And what is there that's really just making the business look good? Or if you doubled up on someone's job, where could you react? And you've got to take the moral compass out of it when you're <coughs> when you're salvaging a business. You must be commercially viable. If a business isn't commercially viable, all you're going to do is hurt a lot of people, hurt a lot of suppliers, hurt a lot of employees. Remember, we have, and going on to a business down the road like Wildcrest, what do we do? Is we constantly review our processes. We have, we're ISO, we're the only park operator in the UK that has ever had ISO 9001. Now, what that means for Wildcrest Parks is very simple. We have systems in place, systems that are being audited and checked. So are we perfect or are we still making mistakes? We are far from perfect. We're making mistakes every single day. And while we will continue to make mistakes, but from those mistakes, we're learning. And as we make them, we have a, a black book here. And it is genuinely a black book on everybody's desk. And what they do is if a mistake happens, it gets written into that book. Does it? Yep. Quarterly, mm. we review everybody's mistakes and we reward them for them. Mm. Giving us the solution. That's very and interesting. Once a, year, once a year, the best solution gets a holiday. <laughs> Does it? Right. Yeah. So you've got your black book, they all write the mistakes down, and then the best mistakes, or I guess the most honest mistakes, get the holiday. Yeah, that's right. And what we do with those, well, not the mistake, not the mistake, the solution. The rectification. Yeah. yeah. You know, there's, there's, there's a policy that we have here for all of our customers, for all of our residents. Our answer is yes. That's it. It's yes. No matter what you ask for, the answer is yes. It's as simple as that. You phone us, you ring us, whatever you want starts with a yes. But the next bit is now we have to make that yes happen. And it has to be commercially viable to make yes happen. We explain that to the customer. We explain that to the resident. You want a new swimming pool, you want electric gates, you want new roads, whatever you want, we're prepared to do. But somebody has got to pay for that. We're not Father Christmas. We don't deliver presents on Eve of Christmas. We all know that doesn't happen in business. I'll say that just in case there's any under 10-year-olds listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I actually, I'm, I'm just waiting for a baby now. Um, she's seven days overdue. Um, so uh, I've got all this to come. Um, uh, I don't know whether to get on the Father Christmas route or not. Um, okay. I have one small saying, which, which I suggest every business um, puts into play. Relish your failures. Celebrate your successes. 
relish your mistakes that are being made within your business. Celebrate the solutions your people and your team are bringing to you. If you criticise them constantly for the mistakes, and don't, I'm, I'm only human, I blow a gasket, I get upset when, you know, things happen, I wouldn't be human if I didn't. But I also celebrate people that are honest enough to come forward to them and say that this is happening, but this is how we can solve it. I go, great. That's one thing gone. It's never going to happen again. Think of yourself as the uh, air investigation team. Every problem they, they solve, how big, how small, saves lives. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and I, I mean, I, I know here at Progressive, constantly we've got issues, we've got, you know, whatever, and, and we, we've, we've got to find those solutions. We don't have the black book. We don't have that record of all the mistakes that have ever happened. And I suspect we'll be implementing something like that because these things aren't new. They're not, you know, this, the, the mistakes that are happening now happened 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago in house building or in mobile parks or in, in training businesses. And it's the same old stuff with a different label on it. And um, I suspect your black books have got a hell of a lot of value to them. <laughs> I suspect a lot of your competitors would love to get their hands on them. Um, it, works. it works for us. I'm not saying, like I said, we're not perfect, but we are Europe's largest residential mobile home park operator. And here are some of the things that go along that put a rise smile on my face. We won business of the year, beating Zoopla, in 2015 for London Loves Business. And that was a hell of a hell of, hell of a, uh, uh, an achievement. We won last, uh, sorry, last year we won Essex TV of the Year Business of the Year. And we're the only park operator ever to ascertain being ISO 9001 registered. Now, on top of that, we have a home authority agreement with the fire department. Now, what does this all mean? What it means is, is we're creating a standard and we're not buying a badge. We could go out to a number of the uh, uh, trade organisations and put a badge on our window. It's not what we're about. And do we get criticised? Oh, my God. There's always somebody that wants to throw a stone. But you know what I say? Tall trees catch a lot of wind, but we're still growing. Alfie, it's been a pleasure. Um, I've learnt a lot. Um, and I know my listeners will, uh, will have got a lot of value from this as well. Uh, so I really appreciate you, you being on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me and thank you very much for your time and your courtesy. And I've learned a lot too. Great. And, uh, and no doubt you'll be at Progressive shortly. So um, I'll, I'll get to talk to you further then. That's been Mark Homer for Mark My Words with Alfie Best. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank and you pleasure. very much, Alfie. Appreciate that and enjoy that H130 because uh, that's a brilliant machine. I'm really jealous. <laughs> See you later. Thanks, Cheers. Bye.